Romans chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 6 through 11. 6 through 11. Again, why justification brings joy and how justification brings joy. The first question is answered in the first uh, four verses, verses 6 through 10. It says this. Paul says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Okay, so here's your first question that we're looking at is, is why justification brings joy? Well, here's the point that Paul's making in this passage, and here's my first point for you, and then we'll tease out some key elements that show us why this is so important and why justification brings joy. The first point is this, the manner in which God justifies me proves that my future salvation is secure. The manner, the way in which God justifies us as sinners proves that our future salvation is secure. See, there's a security, and, and true joy can only come with a sense of security. If you're always anxious of losing what brings you joy, you can never truly have a lasting joy. And so Paul is talking to us about the lasting joy of justification and how it speaks into our lives. And in these verses, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is summarized, and it includes three essential elements that bring joy. I want you to see these three essential elements in this passage. The first thing it does is it reveals the magnitude in this little passage of our desperation. You're going, wait a minute, Chad. I don't want to hear how bad I, I am. I mean, how, how does that bring me joy? Just hang in there with me for a moment, okay? The first three chapters revealed this. Paul's summarizing it here. Just stick with me. I'm going to give you an illustration that will help you understand. Until you realize how messed up you were, I was, before Christ saved me, you will not truly have the joy that justification brings, okay? In this passage, you're going to see four key words that describe our condition when God intervened. Just let's look at these really quick. I'm going to bring the passage back up and highlight them. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to, to highlight them itself. Look at what he, he says about our condition. While we were still weak, he died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, he says at the bottom, enemies. These are key words that when you understand these words that, that describe who we were before Jesus came into the world and, and did what he did for us, you'll never fully have the joy that he intended for us. The, the, per, the passage or the word weak means helpless. Absolutely nothing you could have done for yourself, meaning there is no hope at all. The word ungodly is a term that means an irreverent attitude and, and living with an irreverent attitude toward God that says, I don't need you in your li my life. I don't want you in my life. Keep moving down. Still sinners. The word sinner means someone who sins on a regular basis. I know that's pretty deep. Someone who continually breaks God's moral law. And then enemies, that word actually means someone who from the inside has an inward hatred or, or 
wrath towards someone to the point of wanting them dead. Now, most of us would say, well, I've never really thought, I want you dead, God. But practically, we do. That's why we often make God whom we want him to be, and we accept what we like, and we reject what we don't like. That's in a sense saying, I want you dead, God. I don't want you as you've revealed yourself. I'm just going to recreate you in my own way. That means you want him dead. You don't want him. You want what you want. Even if you're very religious or very moral, you're creating your own God. So this passage shows us three key words that describe our condition when God intervened. Why does that help us? Why does that give us a greater joy? Well, here's why it's important. Let me give you a little illustration that'll capture it. Let's say, let's say you're a parent and, and you let your son sleep over at a friend's house, okay? You drop him off and, and the next morning uh, you call up as you're heading over there and say, hey, hey, how did everything go? And the mom says, you know, everything's good. Your son's fine. My, my husband just had to rescue him from a little accident. Okay, so at that moment, you're, you're not sure how grateful you should be for her husband rescuing him because you don't know exactly what happened. See, you need to know what he rescued him from to know how should I respond to that question. So if she then goes on to elaborate and says, well, your son was about ready to head to Taco Bell to eat, and my husband confronted him and redirected him to Taco Palenque, you would say, oh, well, great. That was really kind of him. I appreciate that. Okay, you'd have a level of gratitude, wouldn't you? However, if she said, you know, your son ran out into the street. They were playing basketball in the driveway, and he ran out into the street to get the ball, and a car was speeding down the street, and my husband ran into the street, pushed him out of the way, and the car hit my husband instead. It broke three of his ribs, smashed his hip, and one of his legs is broken. He's going to make it, but your son's okay. You would have a totally different sense of joy and gratitude for that situation when you understood what it took for your son to be in that state. You see, justification is the same way. Until you and I realize the depth of what we've been rescued from, you will never have an ongoing, deep-seated joy over what God has done. See, until you understand the debt that Jesus paid for you, you won't be able to not freak out about the debts that you occur in this life that are far less significant. Debts that could never sink you for eternity like the debt of sin sank you. Until you understood the disease that corrupted our soul, the disease of sin that will absolutely separate us and keep us from experiencing all that God had for us, you'll always and only ever be able to freak out about the diseases that will hurt you in this world temporally. But when you realize you've been rescued from the greatest disease, the only disease that could sink you for all of eternity, you can even have a deep-seated joy, even though it's difficult, walking through temporal diseases that this world offers. Until you've recognized that you've been rescued from the deepest hurt, the greatest isolation that any human being can ever experience, an eternity without God. 
that that has been taken care of. It's sealed. It is absolutely secure that you will be with the greatest being in the universe for all eternity. You will not be able to walk through the temporal hurts and pains and isolations that this broken world offers. But when you do understand those things, it totally changes your perspective in life. That's the first reason that justification brings joy. The second one is in this passage is it reveals the degree of God's love for me in Jesus Christ. So the first thing is it reveals the state I was in and what God did in here. The second is that it reveals the degree of God's love for me in, in Jesus Christ. Paul makes this stark contrast in this passage about human love, between human love and God's love. He says, for one will scarcely die, in verse 7, for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one sh should dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In, in essence, what Paul is saying is that uh, rarely would anyone in this world die for a righteous person. It's, it's not common. I mean, that's not an everyday occurrence that someone offers their life for someone else. It does happen. We've seen it. We read about stories. There's all kinds of people. There are, there are servicemen that have laid down their lives for a country that they love. There are policemen and firemen who have laid down their lives for a community that they care about. There are even parents who have offered and laid down their lives for a family member or a friend. But that's not what God did. He didn't lay down his life for those who were his friends, for those who were his family. He laid it down for those who were his enemies, those who hated him, those who even nailed his son to a cross when he sent them. I've never met a parent that was engaged with their family that would not lay down their life for one of their children if their child was put at risk. But how many of you would lay down your life for the person who murdered your son or your daughter? That's what Paul is telling us here. This passage reveals the degree of God's love for me in Jesus Christ. And when you understand the depth of that love, a love like nothing in this world, it stirs a deep-seated joy in you that circumstances can't take away. The third thing we see in this passage, finally, is it reveals the guarantee of my future circumstances. See, Paul uses a, a common logic in his day, and even nowadays, uh, to make his point in this section. It's an argument that goes from the greater to the lesser. Listen to me and follow with me in this passage. He says in verse 10, or excuse me, verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So look at the argument. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, meaning by Jesus' death, he says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So he's saying, hey, if God did this first one, if he justified it, if he gave up his son while you and I were enemies, how much more will he save him? And in this case, he's using saved, meaning our final salvation. When he, Christ returns and judges the whole earth, he's saying, how much more will you be guaranteed that you'll be saved at that point? If you've been justified now, 
he's telling us he wants you to know that if you've been justified, if you're trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, that end result is a done deal. How much more will he do that now that you've been justified? He says it again a second way in verse 10. He says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, he repeats himself twice because Paul, because God wants us to know that when he starts something, he completes it. That your salvation does not rest. It never did at the beginning. It never does in the end rest in your hands. It starts with him. It continues with him. And it finishes with him. It's a security that we have. And Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser in his argument to say, if God did this much, how much more will he do this smaller thing in terms of keeping us once we're his friends and his enemies? Uh, my wife, Carrie, literally uh, put her own life in risk in order uh, to save the life of our youngest daughter, Macy. Many of you know the story. I won't go into all the details of it, but she had a, a rare tumor uh, on her that most hospitals had never even dealt with before, and we had to go to Texas Children's Hospital. They hadn't even performed the surgery before, but they felt like they could do it. And so even before we'd met our daughter, we, even before we'd named her, we'd named her just at that point because we didn't know that we would ever see her, uh, they were going to perform a surgery on her when she was 28 weeks in the womb still. She had a huge tumor on her that was taking her life, and she was basically about uh, one day from death as they were monitoring her, and they said, we got to go in now. So it was a huge risk to carry. They had to take her womb out, open up the womb, pull out the rear part of our daughter, remove this tumor, stitch it up, put her back in the womb, stitch up the womb, put that back in my wife, and then hope that they could hold her off from going into labor because that would have ripped her uterus open if she went into labor at that time from the disturbance. It was risky. Uh, and, and she did that never having met our daughter. She loved her that much. We loved her that much that she was willing to risk her life to say, do what it takes to save this child. How sad would it be if now Macy, at seven years old, whom we have a relationship with, who we've gotten to know and we love and, and just enjoy having her in our family, how sad would it be if she worried that tomorrow, when she got hungry, mom wouldn't make the sacrifice necessary to provide a meal for her? When she was willing to risk her life for her when she'd never even met her, how much more would she risk the minor sacrifice that's required to provide a meal for her to continue her life. Church, that's what Paul is teaching us in this passage. If God reconciled you and me when we were his enemies, when we were at odds with him, if he was willing to sacrifice his own son to reconcile you and me, how much more now that we are right in his eyes, now that we have been reconciled, that we have a relationship with him, how much more will he save us from that final judgment? How much more can we be absolutely secure 
that now that we're right with him, we're reconciled with him, that he will finish the job. Church, those are the benefits of justification that Paul wants us to have. This is why justification brings us joy. One is because we realize what we've been saved from. Two, we see the degree of God's love for us. And three, the absolute security that comes from what God has done in our lives. A deep-seated joy that nothing in this world can strip away. Lastly, in the last verse, Paul answers the second question, how justification brings joy. And he says in verse 11, more than that, if that isn't enough already, he says more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What Paul is saying here is that it's not just this generic salvation that, that, that we have, but he's saying, and here, here's your second point, is that the result of my secure salvation leads to joyful satisfaction in God. It leads to joyful satisfaction in God. The word in this passage here, rejoice, actually means a boasting or an exalting. It means to show an unusually high degree of confidence or satisfaction in someone or something that has unbelievable worth it's to see a beauty to enjoy uh, the majesty of something that's so deeply satisfying that you can't help but just rejoice in it you can't help but just be deeply satisfied in that here's what paul is saying is that god hasn't just kept us from some horrible wrath and just said okay guys you're safe from that move on he has said no, I want to have a personal relationship with you. I don't want to just change your circumstances. I want to change your relationship with me. You can relate to the God of the universe. You can enjoy the most magnificent, phenomenal, powerful, loving, holy being that ever existed. Something that in our, in our souls we long for and try to find and satisfy in this world, God says, it's only satisfied here in me. I didn't just save you and then leave you on your own. I saved you to have an intimate, enjoyable, rejoicing relationship with me. So let me ask you a couple questions as we put that and bring it down to, say, our everyday life. What currently gives you the most satisfaction in life? Just answer that yourself. Be honest with yourself. What truly brings the most satisfaction to you in life? This might help you. What do you get the most upset about when it's put in jeopardy? That's one way to understand what you find to be the most satisfying to you. What are you most fearful of if you were to lose it? That's another way to determine what really satisfies you. What do you spend the most time talking about or putting your confidence in? Is it money? Is it your portfolio or your future security? Is it a power or influence that you have in, in life? Is it some of the successes you've experienced in your career or in, or in school? Is it being liked or accepted? And as long as people like you and, and you're accepted and you are, you know, perceived as, as being all right in their eyes and you're happy, but as soon as you face rejection, your world just comes crumbling down. Maybe it's pleasures or hobbies, people or relationships. What do you spend the most time putting your confidence in? 
Because that's the level of security of your joy. And God's trying to teach us that every single one of those things that we naturally put our hope and our satisfaction, our confidence in in this world will be lost at some point in this world. That's why these philosophers that we talked about earlier said one of the means to serenity is totally disengage yourself from everything in this world so it can't hurt you. But we know that dehumanizes us. You see, when any one of these things is our deepest satisfaction, we, made a God, we make a God out of it. And when you make a God out of it, you become a slave to it. And when you become a slave to it, it totally controls your joy and happiness. It leaves only one solution, to find your satisfaction in something or someone who can never be taken away. You know, whatever it is, if it's power, pleasure, people, relationship, is, if you perceive you have it at that moment, you'll be happy. If you lose it, you'll be sad. I remember just, just this last week I was reading an article, uh, I think it was in USA Today, and it, it caught my, title, uh, my attention because the title said, uh, Bald Men Perceived as More Powerful Than Men With Hair. I mean, not that I don't already know that already, but I, so I started reading through the article, and it's just saying how men without hair, bald men are perceived as being more powerful in society. The statistics show it, science shows it, and I'm, you know, as I'm reading this, I'm just, you know, I'm going, hey, this is great, I'm feeling better and better about myself. I'm just about at the end of the article, and all of a sudden, from the other end of the house, I hear my wife say, hey, Chad, the garbage is full, can you take that out? And I go, yes, ma'am, right away. And came right back down to reality of where power really resides in the household. <laughs> I tried shaving my head even more, and when I walked out to get the garbage, it didn't even make a difference. The point is, until you transfer your satisfaction and your security into Jesus, you'll never, ever be able to experience the abiding, lasting joy that God offers. That's what Jesus did. You see, Jesus was so deeply satisfied in the love and acceptance of God the Father that he was able and willing to face the extreme rejection of this world, the incredible loss, even from those people that he created. Picture that. Why would he have the courage to come down knowing what was going to happen to him? unless there is something that so deeply satisfied him, something in which his joy was so absolutely secure that he was willing to even love and risk his life for people who absolutely hated him, his enemies. See, his joy wasn't tied to our temporal acceptance. His joy wasn't tied to his pleasures and popularity. His joy wasn't tied to any momentary influence or power he had on this earth. His joy was completely tied to his satisfaction in his father and for all of eternity and what he knew awaited him. So much so that he was willing to risk it on the cross when his father turned his face away and poured out his wrath on his own son. Jesus said, it's worth it because anything you can take away from me here pales in comparison 
to the joy that awaits me in you, Father. Justification brings that joy. I want you to read this poem that I read this last week that so captures it. It's a Puritan poem on assurance. I just want you to read this together with me. I tried to change some of the language to update it, but just ponder and think about this poem that talks about this principle so purely. So just read it with me and ponder it as we read it. Ready? Almighty God, I am loved with everlasting love, clothed in eternal righteousness, my peace flowing like a river, my comforts many and large, my joy and triumph unutterable, my soul lively with the knowledge of salvation, my sense of justification unclouded. I have scarce anything to pray for. Jesus smiles upon my soul as a ray of heaven, and my supplications are swallowed up in praise. How sweet is the glorious doctrine of election when based upon your word and wrought inwardly within the soul. I bless you that you will keep the sinner you have loved and have engaged that he will not forsake you, else I would never get to heaven. I wrong the work of grace in my heart if I deny my new nature and my eternal life. If Jesus were not my righteousness and redemption, I would sink into the nethermost hell. By my misdoings, shortcomings, unbelief, unlove, if Jesus were not, by the power of his spirit, my sanctification, there is no sin I should not commit. Oh, when shall I have his mind? When shall I be conformed to his image? All the good things of life are less than nothing when compared with his love. And with one glimpse of your electing favor, all the treasures of a million worlds could not make me richer, happier, more contented, for his unsearchable riches are mine. One moment of communion with him, one view of his grace is indescribable, immeasurable. But, O oh God, I could not long after your presence if I did not know the sweetness of it. Have you come to a point in your journey with God that the reality of your justification is so real that it is the greatest weapon against discouragement and joylessness in your life? You are free to face difficult and seemingly hopeless circumstances in this life because of your confidence in what awaits you. You're free from the grip of money, power, popularity, pleasure, and acceptance of people. You're free to radically give of those things for the sake of others because your joy and your greater satisfaction is set in a security that nothing in this world can offer you. And you're free lasting moments of joy and satisfaction in this life less from the things you possess or achieve and more so just simply knowing that the God of this universe smiles down at you his child 
whom he purchased with his own son and is continuing that work in your life. Church, our Father in heaven wants his children to know these truths. He sent his only son to purchase and provide this joy-filled security in your life. There are literally thousands of people in our city who don't know this truth. Thousands of people who even go to uh, religious places week in and week out and hear truths from religious leaders that don't and, and don't teach these things. They, do, they contradict these truths that, that they're not secure and that their joy and their satisfaction and their final salvation is more based on their works and their ability to fill it out than what God has done for them. And yet Paul, God, has made it so clear in his word what he wants his children to know. Like any parent would want a child to know. Now that we have this joy-filled security, Jesus wants us to risk our lives for the sake of others. The same way in which Jesus was willing to risk his life stepping from the thrones of heaven to the pain and sin of this world, knowing that nothing that ever happened to him in this world could shake the foundation of joy and security he had in his father. He wants us to risk our time by spending it with those who may reject us because we know there's one who will never reject us. He wants us to risk our resources by spending them on people who haven't even heard this message yet because he knows a greater wealth, a greater treasure awaits us than any we could ever hang on to in this world. He wants us to risk our reputations as those who are socially acceptable or financially successful or career successful, whatever it is, to risk those things in order to reach those who don't have a security and a joy that can never be taken away. And more than anything else, Jesus wants us to have a deep seated, unshakable joy in the midst of letting go of everything in this world because we know without a doubt that more money, more joy, more pleasure, more deep-seated relationships, in fact, all those things that are held in God's hands will far exceed even a thousand lifetimes of pleasure that this world could ever give. Church, God wants his justification in your life and mine to bubble up in such a way that the world does not understand why we live the way we live. I pray that this church would model that, would become that in our community as we continue to understand the incredible gift we've been given in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.